All right, then, let's do it. Right. You're listening. <laughs> sorry, sorry, sorry. I'll shut up. <laughs> the amateurs. Okay. <laughs> right, this is it now. You're listening to the Blue Box Podcast, and for the next 60 minutes, we're going to be talking about Doctor Who so that you don't have to. Hi, I'm JR. Hello, I'm Lee. Hello, I'm Simon. Uh, hello, I'm uh, Andrew Smith. Hey, and yes, the subject of this week's podcast is, well, well, the reason I've chosen the subject of this week's podcast is because when I was a kid growing up, and this podcast is going to be all about when I was a kid growing up, so I'm making no bones about that right from the off. When I was a kid growing up, my two favourite things were Doctor Who and things like John Wyndham books and H.G. Wells, War of the Worlds. And on TV, Survivors, Mm -hmm. and, you know, basically, post-apocalyptic fiction. Mm. Love it. Those stories that, you know, took place on a devastated Earth. And you know what? Even at the age of 45, I still wake up in the morning sometimes and daydream that when I walk out the front door, I'll be the only person there. Is that what you wish for, is it? (laughs) Well, kind of. You you don't have to post two letters anymore. Do any, do any of the rest of you ever have the same daydream? I do, yeah. Um, I had dreams. Actually, well, some people call them nightmares, but I actually quite enjoyed them where I'd be uh, literally waking up and it would be like the beginning of the day of the Triffids. So I'd have yes. to unbandage my head and I, you know, it's exactly the same. Um, and I'd walk out and there was no one around but me. And I'd just do this kind of... Uh, this free walking, this uh, this kind of thing you get on video games nowadays, where you can just literally walk into houses and apartments and scrabble through people's stuff and see the odd kind of scattering of birds that are still pecking at certain things. It's just a very kind of weird, solitary world. But um, no, I, I kind of quite enjoyed it. It's weird. Does that make Andrew. Yeah. yeah. Well, no. Here's a question then, Andrew. You are a professional writer. Yeah, and a oh. writer is kind of a solitary existence. So, do you ever have this daydream? Not, uh, not that one. No, the only thing like that I can remember as a kid was yeah. when I used to watch the Flash Gordon serials. And, oh, uh, right. Uh, and I, I, I used to, uh, uh, when I was going to school, to primary school, I'd imagine the giveaway lines in the street with the, uh, the light bridges and the cities in Flash Gordon. That is about the only thing I can equate to that, really. <laughs> stepping out into the street, which isn't very post-apocalyptic at all. Oh, I've forgotten about the light bridges. Amazing. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, uh, I just love the noise back the to make it clear, you say Survivors, again, uh, that you're keen on in the childhood. That's the 1975 Survivors, not the... Because your yes, childhood yes. wasn't six or seven years ago when the BBC no. was. You know, I don't know why I was watching Survivors at the age of eight, though. I don't know what my parents were thinking, let me stay up to watch that. Because that was some pretty shocking, scary stuff. I was, uh, I was 13, 1975 it started. I know yeah. because I've just, uh, not too long ago, written a Survivors uh, audio episode of Big Finish. Ah, I am so looking forward to that. So actually, I've had my head all around this uh, post-apocalyptic, all these scenarios fairly recently. That might 
um, sparse and comment. Well, oh, an Andrew, even better reason for having you on. Go on, Lee, <laughs> Andrew, sorry. can I ask you, um, if you've written a story uh, connected with the Survivors um, in a series, um, yeah. well, why do you think it's got such a, a lasting kind of survival? Yeah, well done, Simon, thank you. That's, yeah. <laughs> yeah uh, you know, why, what is it about this kind of subject that people seem to like? Have you any idea, or did you have to do any research on that? I think there's one uh, one very key thing um, right across the post-apocalyptic theme is watching it and thinking how would I uh, would I pass muster in that situation? Um, how would I do if I'm in a in a situation where no mind the cause of you know nuclear war, worldwide plague, whatever, but you're in a position where everything you take for granted in daily life has gone. And you have to get by, and there may be no law and order. Um, uh, could you actually get by? And would you have the ability, the personality, the character, and the skills to actually uh, uh, survive in that situation? And some of the most interesting moments, particularly in early survivors, are where people have conversations about those very things, the things that we take for granted that have gone. I think it's either the, the pilot episode or the second episode. Um, there's a character who's deaf, and he comments that the batteries in his hearing aid will run out. Yeah, uh, that's the first first episode. It's the first episode. And yeah. um, uh, eventually he will just be deaf. He won't be able to hear anything. He won't be able to replace the batteries. He won't be able to make new batteries. Um, and there are little moments like that that really draw you in. Uh, and I tried to do a couple of things like that in my episode as well. But, um, but yeah, I think that's a, that's a big thing with this subject, is people thinking, that was me. How would I get on? Or would I even get past day one? With that in mind, about the battery running out and the hearing aid, um, obviously, you know, that worked really well in the 70s. Technology was just about to take a quantum leap into the digital mm. age and things like that. We were starting to just become reliant on, so it was a bit scary if things like that stopped working. Uh, nowadays, of course, we're totally reliant on technology and Oh, yeah. Texting. <laughs> you know, you take, a te- you take a phone away from a, uh, a teenager and it's like they've lost their limb. But, uh, so why didn't the new BBC survivors work out, do you think? They didn't go into that. Didn't they get into it? I didn't even watch it, to be honest. I was just making a question. I, I, I haven't seen much of it, and I deliberately stayed away from it when I was working on the 70s one, so I didn't want it to cross over. Um, but I, I, I do know that they, they did pick up on that. And I think, I think it's produced by Adrian Hodges. I think I've got that right. Um, yeah. Uh, and they, they did a lot of research, and they found there were things like, in the, the 70s survivors, people would get, go to the local garage and they'd still be able to get petrol out of the, out of the petrol pumps. Um, but no, again, it's all computerised and yeah. reliance on it. And you, you wouldn't be able to do that, apparently. <clears throat> so there are things like that. But yes, we've become a very... Trouble with digital... Yeah. Trouble with digital technology is one component goes and the whole thing switches off. Yeah, Whereas, vulnerable. Mm. Yeah, with analogue technology, if if something goes wrong, you can probably replace that just with a bit of manual sort of elbow grease yeah. like you say with the getting the petrol out of the petrol tanks in a petrol station which, which yeah. is the title of my favorite all-time short story the machine stops by em forster written back in 1909 if anybody gets a chance to read it that's one of the most uh, prophetic short stories i've ever read not only does it predict tv but it predicts the internet basically it's a it's a great story oh yeah it's underdone and that's, again, what, you know, when you really rely on technology and it goes, 
that is exactly what happened with the Thals, wasn't it? They were left. Uh, up, yeah. Yeah. They, they got the poor end of the deal. Well, you know, before we get there, or on the subject of that, because the because what we have in front of us is sort of a chronological list of all the stories that we could think of that, in some way, tied in with this sort of post-apocalyptic post-apocalyptic theme. And that first that first Terry Nation story, the Daleks, is an obvious place to start. But before we actually talk about the story itself. I think we ought to mention where these stories and where this fiction comes from. Because apart from H.G. Wells, most sort of of the post-apocalyptic fiction that we think of when we think of things like Day of the Triffids and then, of course, slightly later Survivors and there may be movies like No Blade of Grass and so on. Mm. Also based on the the um, book by um, John Christopher, who wrote The White Mountains as well, which is another sort of post-apocalyptic fiction that's very famous and lived large in, you know, many child's, sort of many people's childhood. But it's, a lot of it is post-Second World War fiction. A lot of it was, yeah. I think Day of the Triffids came out in 1951, if I'm not mistaken, or around about then. And it was always said that Terry Nation's second Dalek story was very much based on the idea of the Second World War and what would have happened if Germany had won. But if you look at the Daleks, the story that came before that, that comes out of the Cold War. That comes out of what happened in Japan in 1945. The whole sort of post-apocalyptic genre is kind of based around, although all the stories they tell will be about some other form of devastation, it's all about what would happen to the people who survived a nuclear war. That's what yes. the whole genre is about, really. Yeah. And those two Terry Nation stories are, you know, a brilliant example of it. First of all, he's got the Daleks, which is, and we'll probably get into this by degrees, you know, if you're going to do a post-apocalyptic thing, you're either going to set it at the apocalypse, in the immediate aftermath of the apocalypse, or at some point in the future, after the apocalypse itself has gone, when you have the societies that have grown up and that have developed out of the apocalypse, who are basically living on a new planet, that, that their species wasn't really designed by nature to exist on, and how that species has adapted to a sort of living situation that it wasn't really designed for. And the Daleks is an example of that. That's kind of a post, post-apocalypse story in that, you know, Skaro at that point is a new and different planet to the planet of the Thals and the Khaleds, as we later find out, mm. had sort of developed, evolved on. And now you've got this situation, and this was obviously based on H.G. Wells' The Time Machine with the Morlocks and the Eloy at the end. But instead of the Morlocks, you've got the Daleks, and instead of the Eloy, you've got the Thals. And, you know, that's an analogy that many people have made. It's very obvious. But at the same time, we're talking, we're here to talk Doctor Who, we're here to talk about how people have adapted this kind of story trope, this theme, into Doctor Who. And there's Terry Nation demonstrating, first of all, in the Daleks, about how you can do the post-post-apocalyptic thing in Doctor Who, and successfully... And in the Dalek invasion of Earth, what you have is the immediate aftermath of the apocalypse. And also, he does that very successfully. Do you all... Is, uh, I mean, is that something you all think? Yeah, I think it's... I mean, there are those two basic types of story. There is the immediate aftermath of the disaster, whatever it is, 
And in the 60s and 70s, that was almost always nuclear and threat of radiation. Um, mm. Then, like you say, the post-post-apocalypse, which is taking it that step further, that thing of, uh, you know, the society has adjusted to the fact that the, the disaster, the catastrophe has happened and has found a way of getting along, uh, usually with two factions, as you say, uh, yeah. getting along or not. Yeah. Mm. He, he seems to have um, carried it on in his other dark stories as well, though. If you just kind of zip to Destiny the Daleks, it's like a post-post-apocalyptic. And of course, Genesis is the pre-post-apocalyptic, just before they're going to, you know, let off all the bombs. So, yeah, well, that's you know. during the apocalypse, really. Yeah, Genesis, during. isn't it? Yeah, yeah. And the interesting thing about Destiny is, okay, let's go along the theme of the Dalek stories for a while, because why not? Terry Nation was the grand master of this. Mm -hmm. He's, after all, we've not, I don't think we've mentioned yet, he is, of course, the person who devised the series Survivors that we were all talking about a few minutes ago. Yeah. yeah. So, you know, it was obviously in his blood. The interesting thing about Destiny is it's a return to the apocalyptic world, not just for the species that kind of outgrew that world and left, but also another species comes in that wasn't native to that planet, and the story plays out between those two species, the natives and the aliens. And in that story, the Daleks, actually, are the ones who are not the aliens, which is, you know, a slightly cleverer twist than people usually give Terry Nation credit for. It is. It's, uh, I, I, don't, I think that stretches a post-apocalyptic theme, I think, yeah. that the, um, the Mavellans who are the, the adversary in that story are not the ones who are affected by the catastrophe that actually led no. to the Daleks. Um, but, it ha but it has that kind of post -apoc the, the apocalyptic setting, if you think, the, the scarrow that um, mm. the Doctor and Romana turn up, uh, turn up in in episode one. You know, one of the things I always loved about those stories when I was a kid, especially... I guess when you could see it on TV in Survivors, but also I guess when you're also reading the books and you're seeing it in your mind's eye, is the idea of a, a landscape with no people on it, uh, houses with no people in them. And I guess that's one of the... I keep saying I guess. I, I suppose that's one of the sort of attractive things, if you like that kind of thing, about any story set on Scarrow, is that you're always thinking... It's a dead planet. It's a devastated, mm -hmm. deserted planet. And it's... But that's a real serenation device. Yeah, yeah. You know, it's a lovely backdrop to tell you. Almost every serial, um, they, you know, we turn up and we're in an environment that appears empty, deserted, yeah. and then usually starts with one figure traipsing along and getting killed. Um, <laughs> yeah. And then we find out there are more... By the end of it, episode one, we find out more people are there. And then for the rest of the story, the place is pretty crowded. But... Um, uh, but but yeah, that's a setting that he certainly liked. I think well, the um, thing I think that's clever about the Daleks <clears throat> is the is it could so easily have been purely a time a time machine pastiche as such. Um, mm -hmm. And what's clever, I think, is the fact that it is done on an alien planet. So you you kind of separate it from Earth because it could so easily have been an Earth. He could have gone far future and basically said that the same thing could have happened on Earth. But it didn't. I suppose it kind of lends a certain amount of optimism to us. Well, that's also where science fiction is really good as a, as a storytelling device, going back to you know, the great science fiction literature that allows you to tell these allegories you know, yes. so yeah. well. And you're not bogged down by having to be historically accurate on certain things, just to, to, to make a point, to make a narrative point, to tell a, a good dramatic story.
Yeah. It's yeah. almost like the author wagging his finger at the viewer and saying, right, <laughs> you lot be sensible, mm. or this is what will happen to you. Mm-hmm. And I suppose... Thing... Go on. No, I was going to say, the other, the other thing with um, using the, the, you know, the nuclear war threat, one other thing that comes up in sci-fi, and it's a really good sci-fi device, but at the same time, you know, if you were a kid or growing up in the 60s and 70s, um, uh, as at least I think a couple of us here were, uh, the threat of radiation, you know, it's a really good sci-fi device. It features strongly in the Daleks. Mm. Um, and it's it's all about how the Daleks came to be. Uh, but that also very, very closely relates to what made people very afraid in the 60s and 70s and post-war, you know. Oh, yeah. Mm. It's, it's when I was growing up, yeah. I don't know if Simon and Lee being slightly younger, but were you aware of just how real the threat of dying from radiation poisoning Seemed to everybody in the sort of early and mid-70s. Absolutely. I lived, yeah. um, and my mum still lives there, actually, literally about five or six miles away from where there are, we called them the dishes, which were, you know, the, the satellite dishes, the, mm. um, you know, where they, where they monitor all the transmissions and what have you. And obviously, during the Cold War, it was a massive place. We always used to be told the story that it was like it was on the hit list of, for missiles. Oh, right, if yeah. there was ever a, a first strike, it would be in the first strike. And... The amount of nightmares I had, it's funny you saying about earlier about nightmares, I think I must be a born pessimist because I never thought, <laughs> I never thought past the apocalypse. I, never, I always thought, no, that would be it, basically. Yeah. So well, all my nightmares know, were about the mushroom cloud, you know. As a kid in the 70s, I, I think, you know, we kind of thought the Third World War would come at some point. Yeah, yeah. The Union was there, you know, and so a bit more optimism we got in the 80s, but you, you certainly, you thought, you know, not too long before we had the Second World War, not too long before the First World War, before that, and we just felt yeah. there was another one due, and there was a lot, a lot of tension. And I think and even again, that threat of radiation was uh, yeah, yeah, really strong. When you're a kid, you don't you think you look and you say, right, the first one's called the First World War, the second one's called the Second World War, and even without thinking about the mm-hmm. fact that you know there were people with a finger mm-hmm. over the button, you just assume there's going to be a third one at some point. Yeah, and our families had been, our fathers had fought in the war, our grandfathers had fought in the First World War, and we expected we'd have to fight in the next one. Yeah, so, absolutely yeah. right. In yeah. a good way, that's, yeah. I, I, strangely enough, I, I feel I'm a, an optimist now, because I've had these dreams of walking around in a post-apocalyptic world. <laughs> Thanks, Simon, that's made me feel really good. Uh, no, I think uh, early early 80s, uh, when I saw threads was the real thing that scared the absolute uh, bejesus out of me. I couldn't, yeah. I couldn't sleep for months, years. Probably I was for just going to mention that. <laughs> yeah. Well, I was living in Sheffield up until three years before oh. that was on. <laughs> so that was, you know, that entire program was all taking place in, you know, locations that I recognised, which made it twice as bad. Have I lost everybody? No, no, no. no. I, I was, I was, I was I, sorry. Remembering it and feel like having the same reaction to it. Oh, yeah. The I idea was, of threads. Am I, have I got this right? Did it almost get banned? Did it? I'm not sure, I'm but... Not sure it, memory, but um, was it, it the, sorry, was it on the cover of the Radio Times? For some reason, I've got that in my head, that there was a Radio Times, and even that I didn't want to see. Oh, maybe. I'm not sure. It might well, well have been. The traffic warden with a bandit's head. I think it was. I think yeah. it was. Yeah. <clears throat> oh, really? Wow. It was one of those things that just shocked the nation, really, wasn't it? That but really it took the nation... That, yeah, it was all part of that message that came through actual factual reporting, newspaper reporting and documentaries, but also fiction. 
the, yeah. this, this thing of the, the threat of what nu- nuclear war could be like and what radiation could be like or could never be like, but it told a good story. Um, yeah. That it really it really stuck with people and and um, you know the awareness was always there of how terrible this could be, and fiction played its part in it. Um, uh, and you know probably kept a lid on the fact that people actually this is something people really didn't want. You know. Mm. And of course, at the same time, and this is going to sound really odd because it was a sitcom, but at the same time you had the good life, which was almost like it was trying to trying to. <laughs> subconsciously educate the nation in how they would have to survive once society had been destroyed in a nuclear Armageddon. You know, it was almost like... conservative neighbours. Yeah. Well, it was almost education by subterfuge, almost, it felt, sometimes. Mm. You had the the irradiated bird that was um, laying petals at the start. I've read the writers on... uh, I've read the writers on survivors actually use some of the same research material, the same writing um, yeah. for some of the solutions, particularly series two and three, um, when we had communities forming in survivors uh, in these rural locations. Um, and they went, they went to the same sources as the, the writers of The Good Life had gone to. to oh, it wouldn't surprise me at all, mm. yeah. Is that, I mean, of course... Which apocalypse, but... Uh, oh. <laughs> oh, when did... Yeah, when did that oh, come out? That was the 60s, 80s. wasn't it? Oh, early 80s. Oh, yeah. I'm thinking of... Um, oh, I'm thinking of something else. Um, can I just say that go on, it's strange? Yeah. Where did this um, this strange thing that did seem to come through in the sixties? This idea of radiation being something that was allied with metamorphosis. So, oh, um, yeah, was, the idea was, of ubiquitous. It was really uh, it was everywhere. You know, seeing comics, superhero comics. You know, yeah, yeah, yeah. Superheroes, like the Hulk and uh, Spider-Man, whoever, who are, you know got the powers from radiation. Yeah, it's. Uh, yeah, and of course, Terry Nation feeds on that in the Daleks, of course, because the Daleks. Well, there's that chapter in the book, isn't there? The Lake of Mutations yeah. spells it right out, right there. Mm, yeah. yeah, that was one of the big things. Is like you know, nobody, nobody seems to quite know what radiation would do to you, but everyone seemed to agree that it would do something to you. And would change you. Mm, yeah, change you in some way. Um, and of course, threads. You we don't seem to be talking a huge amount about Doctor Who here, but I don't think people will really mind. Threads was 1980, and that was after a decade in which you'd had a lot of speculative fiction. In fact, two decades in which you'd had a lot of speculative fiction about what the outcome of a nuclear holocaust or, you know, what the bad outcome of the Cold War could be. Threads was like the first time somebody had really sat down and tried to do it factually, and I think that was what was so shocking about it, because probably by that point, people were kind of becoming inured to the fact that they'd had 20 years of things like Day of the Triffids and the Daleks and all Mm. these other things. And then all of a sudden, if somebody throws in your face, yeah, just remember, this could still happen to you. I think that's why it had such a big effect, perhaps. Even even Quatermass um, had a go, didn't he? Oh yes, yeah, a, the John Mills Quatermass. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh yeah, yeah. the no- 1979. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Um, just, I mean, I'm spinning on a little bit further, but you're talking about threads and the immediate kind of. It, 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 as soon as I watched this episode of Doctor Who in the recent years, it just spun me right back to threads, and I was quite shocked at seeing this image in Doctor Who, and it was um, turn left. 
Um, where yeah. it all goes to pot because the doctor ain't around, and uh, obviously there's this huge explosion, and in Donna's eyes you can see it's all going to going to shit really, and you just think, you know, I, it just spun me back. I thought this is a really powerful episode. Um, the kids around me are just seeing explosions, but they're not really going to get the fear <laughs> of, of 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 this kind of society that may have to evolve from this devastation, but. Uh, yeah, no, I thought that's the closest I think Doctor Who's really got to showing the power of something like this. That and Last of the mm. Time Lords. Uh, but okay, fair enough, we'll jump ahead, but why not? Turn Left is a very interesting um, look on the genre, because like you say, it's all, well, it's all kind of basically in Donna's head. It's a big what if. Isn't it um, It's strange? I know it's picked pinpointing one particular part of that episode but how we are so settled in our domesticity or whatever you call it um in in that one of the horrors of it is the fact that they've got to move in with another family <laughs> but but that that is what is so brilliant about how how well written that episode is i just think it's it's so good that's something rtd so good at isn't it is the small things yeah and that's why it's so close to home it uh, it really hits hard there's a lot. There's a lot of narrative as we covered in that uh, in that episode. But you're absolutely right, and that is that thing. You know, turning up the nose at the idea of having to actually live in a house with other people is very mm. much about that thing of your what you're used to is your day to day life, and, and even you know what you will tolerate or not tolerate, what you're used to, what you're socially used to, goes completely out the window. And and that uh, that that uh, exemplified that very well, I think. And it's all about adapting to new circumstance. And the mm. really exciting thing about the way Turn Left does it is that he does it by degrees. He shows, I don't know, I, I've not sat there and counted, but he shows something like four different apocalypses in that episode. And after each apocalypse, the circumstance changes by another degree to be so much worse than it was last time. So it's... It, Turn left, it almost feels like the entire three series of Survivors boiled down into one sort of 45-minute go because you get to see all the different stages all in the one episode. It's interesting to see that Turn Left and Last of the Time Lords are both reset switch stories, though, aren't they? I mean, they're not real apocalypses. They don't really happen. Well, they do happen, but they snap back and it's all okay. Whereas the, well, the list that I'm looking at, which we'll go through, I'm sure, uh, are kind of real. They've happened in, in the canon of Doctor Who. Well, they did and they didn't. Uh, well, they basically did. But this was the point I was uh, kind of going to get to by the end of the episode. But seeing as we're there now, why not? Uh, the, the point I was going to come to is you can't really do a post-apocalypse story in Doctor Who because with it being essentially an anthology series, you effectively, if you're going to set your story on Earth, you have to leave your planet Earth the same at the end of your story as it was at the start. Mm. You can't really do anything during the course of your story that resets the planet, only the characters. Well, to be honest, though, uh, as far as the dinosaurs are concerned, every story in Doctor Who is post-apocalypse, isn't it? Apart from the prehistoric ones. Yeah, we'll come to that in a bit, <laughs> Simon. <laughs> You've kind of... But you see, my point is that with something like Dalek Invasion of Earth, you can just about get that way with that because she's setting it so far into the future that nobody who's watching it in 1964 is still going to be alive, you know, to say, oh, that didn't happen. But with something that's set in the present day, 
or at any point in the past. And obviously none of these stories are set in the past because that would just be stupid. But with something set in the present day, in order to maintain your very similitude, if you want, you have to try and sneak your post-apocalypse story in, in some fashion that leaves the planet Earth, you know, at the end of your story, the same place it was at the start of your story. So you've got to do it more subtly. You can't just... And it's a shame, because uh, when Aliens of London was on, if you remember back in the first series of Christopher Eccleston, mm-hmm. and we, I, and I guess we were all watching it, and none of us knew from one week to the next quite what we'd be seeing, and some of the um, previews of uh, Aliens of London gave the impression that it might be set in a deserted London, and I was oh, just right. thinking, I wonder if he'd go that far. And of course he didn't. And as you so rightly pointed out a couple of minutes ago, Lee, the only time he did do that, the only time Russell T. Davis did sort of properly put a post-apocalypse on the screen was in Last of the Time Lords, where he had to go back at the end of the story and wipe that year out in a reset. Because you just couldn't you couldn't have continued the series afterwards mm. on an Earth that had lived through that. But there wasn't a particularly nice reset, was it? Because obviously the people in the Eye of the Storm had lived through all of that. So you did have some, you know, wounded, emotionally wounded people coming out of that, which was a really nice touch, actually, I thought. It's the best you can do is that your characters remember what happened, but for the rest of the planet, it didn't, I suppose. It's interesting, again, I think some of the more recent stories we talk about post-apocalyptic, you have to stop and think for a minute, hang on, is it post-apocalyptic? Yeah, turn yeah. the obvious one. Um there's a thing of, you know, storytelling often reflects the times. And, I th- you know, going back to 60s and 70s, there was that threat of nuclear war um, mm. and potentially in the future having, you know, survivors in a, uh, a, in a post-nuclear scenario. But that went away in the 80s. We've got a different kind of storytelling. And the post-apocalyptic stories we then tended to get that we could class as post-apocalyptic are not so much about the results of uh, war but they're about natural disaster. Yeah. Or, uh, particular catastrophes happen. So this crash, crash spacecraft or um, uh, whatever. Uh, or, or in the or case of the mysterious... In the mysterious planet. Yeah. But the um, social commentary as well in um, uh, Aliens of London. Have I got that right? Yes. Aliens of London, World War Three, where you've got... They're not, what is it? The, the mass weapon of destruction. It's meant to be the yeah. weapon of mass destruction... But, you know, the the comment there with the missiles coming in, um, it's always reflected in the storytelling. But we've moved away from that threat Although, that we could relate to. You know, yeah. the, you know, it could still happen, but you could still have a immediate threat. Yeah, the apocalypse in this instance is not the world going to war with one another, but terrorists, really. And he makes that point satirically in Aliens of London. But really, if you're going to look at um, any underlying reason for there being the possibility of an apocalypse in the viewing audience's mind during the sort of early days of the new series, time of Last of the Time Lords and Turn Left, it can only be the terrorist threat that could possibly have done that. And I guess the character of the Master in... Sound of Drums and Last of the Time Lords, is in a way behaving like a terrorist who's been given the reins of power. And it's all satirical, but at the same time, you know, you don't get satire if you don't have something to satirise. 
So I'm not quite sure what point Russell T. Davis was making, but as somewhere in the back of his mind, I, th- I feel he must have been thinking along some of those lines, at least part it's of the telling, It's telling a good drama. Yeah, yeah. yeah. But Mysterious Planet is, uh, seen as we've just got into the 80s, we're kind of going around the outside of this and working our way towards the middle, aren't we? (laughs) (laughs) It doesn't matter, it doesn't matter. We're here to talk about the theme, so it doesn't matter. Mm. But The Mysterious Planet um, is an example of, you know, this is in our list because we're calling it post-apocalypse. And it essentially follows some of the themes of the post-apocalypse stories. And The Mysterious Planet is another one that is a little bit like uh, The Time Machine in the respect of it's post-post-apocalypse. It's set at some point in an indeterminate future. But the point with The Mysterious Planet, that goes for other stories as well, like Utopia, uh, for example. It's not Mm. after an apocalypse. It's after society has kind of naturally disappeared. It's kind of end of a cycle, fantasy cycle. A new type of society, yeah. Yeah, it's where, yeah, exactly. It's where the society in which we live has been replaced by something else because nature just took it that way, I guess. Evolution just took it that way. But it kind of fits in with some of the same themes, which is why I've got it on the list and why I decided to bring it up. And it's going to, that kind of story... Bring us to you, Andrew. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so I, I'm thinking we should. Well, yeah. Okay, let's do that now. And then there are a few other things that we can talk about, and we'll come to those afterwards. But why not, Andrew? You are responsible for the story in the 1980s. Full circle. This is the bit. <laughs> yeah, full circle. <laughs> well. Obviously, that's not really a post-apocalypse story, but just before we were coming on, we were talking about why we've included that in our discussion, and we were talking about the time machine. But Full Circle kind of involves some of those similar themes in that it's about a planet that, in all other respects, is almost like a deserted planet with two kind of factions that have been thrown together and it's about will they get on how do they get on if they don't get on what are the problems between them and so on and so forth were you actually thinking any of those things when you were writing it or were you just writing an adventure story i know that it started, it started very much from thinking about the ecology of the planet so it, it was thinking about nature on the planet and the, the people in the starliner being in conflict with the nature on the planet yeah um, uh, which turned out to be really epitomised by the Marshmen, the spiders, to this degree, but the society that the Starliner community is up against, and their society, they were up against the uh, the Marshmen. But it does a lot of the same themes like we're saying of the post, post-apocalypse. The apocalypse here being the catastrophe of the Starliner crashing, as it turns out, thousands of years before. Um, uh, and a society, you know, a, a group of people who become a society, people on the Starliner, um, evolve into the society with their so leadership, with the deciders and whatever, and that becomes their um, their ongoing way of life. Uh, their ongoing way of life also including the cycle of mistfall and the marshmen coming out and being in conflict with them and having to ad- adapt. Um, and also on the third faction really with the outlers, who are the ones who say actually we don't mm. have a society and we're going to stay outside and we think mistfall is a, a load of hooey. So um, 
There's a word I don't think I've used before, but we're keeping it clean. <laughs> but, so, <laughs> um, but that's a really yeah. interesting sort of development you've made there. In that, okay, if we're going to take something like the time machine as a possible subconscious influence on the story tropes, the way you use the story tropes. I'm not saying it was an influence, but we'll take it as an antecedent anyway. Mm. But the really interesting development that you've made is rather than just having the two factions going against each other, with the outlers, you've kind of come in between. That's almost like somebody's gone from... Well, it's a little bit like Romeo and Juliet, if you will. It's where the two factions meet in the middle. Yeah, yeah. Or having that, having that kind of strong society, the official society, and then the voice that says, actually, you know, we're not going to go with you. It's kind of like the, the Peter, is it Peter Salas character in the Ice Warriors? Hmm. Yeah, yeah. I can't think of his name, but um, again, I know who you mean. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. He's, he's sitting outside this Penley, I think. Penley, yeah, yeah. Um, I think so. Well, yeah. with Angus Lenny. Um, mm. uh, so yeah, so there's precedent for that. And having, you know, like the, the rebels, if you like. I suppose that's what you, the label we put on it. The rebels are always going to be there. But like the mutuals in Genesis of the Daleks, perhaps. You know, were you the, aware of actually. the Ice Warriors when you were writing Full Circle? I, it was one of the first novels I read. Yeah, all right. Whether I would, I wouldn't have, I don't think I've been influenced by that. Um, I don't think if I'd sat down in 1980, I could have told you much about the story apart from it was, Ice Warriors at a time when you know the Earth is covered in ice. Um, I couldn't tell you much more than that. Do you know the other story as well that Full Circle reminds me a little bit of? And as soon as I say this, you'll know exactly what I mean. Is the mutants? But you couldn't. Yeah. I suppose you. Pra- I, I suppose you must have seen that when you were growing up. But I don't think the book was out at that point. That was one of the later ones oh, that came out, wasn't it? It's not one that even now I got much. I mean, I I got really into Doctor Who and. Patrick Troughton was on, and I saw, yeah. I think, every episode or just about every episode, and I remember some very strongly. The Mutants has got images that I remember, but the story is not yeah. one that sticks with me. No, yeah. actually, the, the Mutants is a, a very, quite a weak story with an, a nice idea, which you mm. seem to have in full circle, uh, running at a much better pace, much better. it's a much better idea, the way that you kind of seeded it in and used it in the story. Um, you were talking about stories reflecting the era, uh, the era in which they're written in. Uh, did Full Circle have any outside influence from the world in it, or was it just literally a fantasy story for Doctor? Have you seen some of the hairstyles? <laughs> <laughs> yep. Yep. <laughs> yeah, there's a perm or two in there. You look, you look along those um, those citizens by the river. There's one or two medieval perms in there, but um, uh, I don't, I don't think they're the same as their shoulder pads. But, um, oh, I need, I need to stop and think about that one, actually. In terms of the, well, the story. You definitely get, uh, given when it was made, um, which is sort of very early 80s, and yeah, this is probably, well, yeah, yeah, yeah. No, the point I'm about to make, though, is that this is probably way too early to have seen this coming. But if you look at the role of the deciders in that, that's very much sort of author- authoritarian government of the kind that Margaret Thatcher would love to have seen. <laughs> and she was just on the horizon as you were writing it. I don't suppose you saw that at all, though, did you? If anyone's listening to this, no. <laughs> <laughs> I am not. I was not. Um, uh, I was not trying to put the case for a Thatcher-like government. But, um, no. 
<laughs> but you know what I mean, though. I mean, whether yeah. whether you agree or not with any of these things, I think um, you know the whole planet was kind of moving in that direction at that time because America followed suit very shortly afterwards. Was it six months later that um, one, one Reagan thing came I, into power? I, I do remember, and I think I covered this in the book as well. Was the thing of having you know the the ideal system of government is a democracy. Um, what they've got in the Starliner is not democracy. They've put power in the hands of uh, three stooges, three people, three people. Mm. Yeah, uh, it's a type D oligarchy, if you will. And um, <laughs> uh, but it's so you say it's maybe not your ideal, but it is perhaps the best model for those circumstances. Yeah, where actually you can afford really to just be having someone who can make the best speech and win elections uh, and whatever. And again, I'm not advocating yeah. getting rid of democracy. It's a lovely thing. But um, uh, there is, you, you know, I definitely think there is there is that thing with that kind of story that you say, well, you surrender some of your ideals uh, in order to actually get the best result. And in order to survive, actually. Mm. And of course, uh, we shouldn't really go into this, but I mean, the biggest argument against democracy is you put the power into the hands of the people who are least qualified to wield it, you know, with the vote. Uh, we shouldn't really talk about this, but you know what I'm saying. <laughs> oh, my God. Do you know, one really interesting question, because I think state of decay is, uh, well, obviously, apart from the fact that it's a story that follows your story, but it covers a lot of very similar ground. It, 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 I was surprised. <laughs> yeah, it's. I mean, it almost tells yeah, exactly the same story. Yeah. It. You know, years later, when Remembrance of the Daleks and Silver Nemesis were two put two stories apart, and they had a few of the same themes, mm. and I'm thinking, yeah, but Full Circle was one story apart from State of Decay, and they had all the same themes, pretty much. But the, so my question that, is that nice sort of medieval. Yeah, like, you know. it, yeah. Technology yeah, against yeah. nature, medieval against futuristic, and mm. also there's that the the theme of the one having the influence on the other, and then the other decaying on sort of the former, and yeah. it's all got the same sorts of things going around in that sort of circle. Change, but but uh, yeah, uh, entropy and nature, entropy and evolution fighting a constant battle against one another, which is one of Christopher H. Bidmead's big themes by the end of the series. Absolutely. But, by the same token, uh, did you bring full circle to them, or did he uh, seed the idea in your mind? And how much influence did Christopher H. Bidmead have on what you were writing? Oh, uh, quite quite a bit, and a lot of episode. Well, you know, fair chunks of the script are Chrissy's, and the, a lot of episode four is Chrissy's. Um, uh, and the story. I mean, the first thing when I had the the initial script, well, the storyline that I sent in, uh, the story then was that the ship had just crashed and was just the crew were just responding to it, and then it was at the initial script meeting with, with John Nathan Turner, who decided, no, we we do something different and we have it as an, an evolved society. And take right. it towards, you know, a very, a very different story that led us to this thing about these, um, uh, the Pterodonians as they thought they were having evolved from the Marshmen. Um, there was some theme, there's, there's one theme I remember Chris talking about, which has nothing to do with the apocalypse or whatever, but the it doesn't idea, matter. Uh, the, the cargo cult, as he talked about it, the, um, which was, uh, uh, tribes in Africa that would see planes that would drop, uh, 
cargoes, uh, you know, relief cargoes or whatever, and then would set up uh, rituals around, you know, expecting this manna kind of to drop from the sky again, right, yeah. build up the cargo cult um, as something of being, you know, a rote procedure, if you like, that influenced the the rote procedure that yeah. is on the uh, on the starliner. Hmm. All of which is classic, sort of. Well, I was going to say classic Doctor Who. It's classic science fiction, not necessarily classic Doctor Who. Can I, can I just say, I, um, I had a, uh, a glance over Full Circle yesterday, <clears throat> a lot of it with the the commentary over the top, mm. which, you know, is really fascinating. But I started thinking, if you made Full Circle now with the new series, and I was thinking, would on the evolution side of things, would, would, would we have seen more stages of ev- evolution? But actually, the more I think about it, I think it probably would have been even even simpler for the for the audience now in order to fit in with the 45-minute thing. But um, I, I, I think if it was now, somebody would say it was possibly anti-creationist, which I think is brilliantly ahead of its time. Because I'm not. <laughs> I, I mean, at the time, at the time you wrote it, obviously there was there was very little like that, was there? There was no. Um, was there Andrew? There was no. Well, it was post von Daniken, so the, those ideas were around, weren't they? Uh, do you know what I mean when I say von Daniken? There wasn't much on TV, though, about it. Is Chariots of the Gods? Yeah, Chariots yeah. of the Gods. That was yeah. ni- early 70s, wasn't it? Mm-hmm. Yeah, and uh, I'll, I'll chip in as well while I'm, while I'm thinking about Full Circle. I haven't seen it for a while, but um, I remember, I think, off the commentary that you mentioned that it was originally called The Planet That Slept, Yes, which yeah. is a, a great title. Um, I can't remember the commentary or, or anything about it, but did you kind of... Whose whose choice was it to call it full circle? And uh, I think it was John's. Uh, I, had a, right. com- I had a conversation with um, with Chris on the phone when it changed. Actually, he phoned up to let me know they were changing it. And um, uh, and he said, I remember Chris uh, Chris said to me, he said John John doesn't like titles that have got the word of in the title. I said oh, the planet that's it. <laughs> and he said, I did it. Planet that's it. Yeah. And he and he said, and it looks really good on the wall as well, you know, because there's a there was a, a whiteboard with you know the story yeah. was on them and they were the planet that's like, so it went to full circle, which um, yeah I was never really happy with. Now, uh, Bernard Padden, uh, who played Tylos in Full Circle, we we got to, uh, back together, we're, we're back in touch, and he was telling me, and um, he's he's pretty adamant uh, about this that the first time he uh, he saw a script or when he was when he signed the contract, it was actually called Mistfall. Oh, really? Uh, which I thought would have been a cracking title. Yeah, he's he mentioned it to me, and then and I said no, 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 because I never heard that. Um, but then he's pretty sure that he he saw a, a contract or something that had, um, and he's well, he's adamant. He's sure he came back to me on it. He said no, I'm sure. At one point, it was called Mistfall. Well, so, that would seem to there was, fit in it's with not a script for that title. Oh. So. But it would seem to fit in with Christopher H. Bidmead because he seems to like the one-word titles, you know, yes. Legopolis, Castrovalva, Frontios. That would seem to fit in with his way of thinking. Yes, yeah. And of course, they'd say John Nathan Turner says I don't like titles with the word of in them. And what's the very story after yours? State of decay. But yeah, <laughs> <laughs> of decay. Yeah. But, uh... Uh, you know, it's, it's good to have a little bit of melodrama in the Doctor Who title, though. I think so, too. I love the sort of B-movie titles the from the sort of 70s. The hand of fear. Yeah. Yes. You something. can't beat that. No. No. 
I think we should move back into talking some more post-apocalypse, though, shall we? Yeah, hey, let's do Before we leave, I've got, to say, Go I've got to say thank you then, Andrew, because I often talk about my nan's house on this podcast <laughs> and, and how influential it was in me watching so much Doctor Who. And Full Circle is one of the ones I've got on a little C60 somewhere. <laughs> that we call oh, it. I did that. Yeah. yeah, listen to over and over again. So thanks very much for the memories. <laughs> My pleasure. Oh, that takes me back. Off-air recording on a yeah, yeah. Because I used to think my I hear when I hear the uh, the nineteen seventies time tunnel uh, Doctor Who theme, um, I always imagine it with a door creaking. So it's <laughs> because that's me. I switched the recorder on in the bedroom, and then I've gone downstairs, and as I leave the door, just goes. So that's part of the theme for me. The seventies. Oh yeah. My uh, oh wow. Yeah, Leisure Hive. Oh Leisure Hive, actually. Maybe you know, put a post apocalyptic. Mm. Um, uh, that was the first story that I video recorded. But, uh, oh really? Wow. Yeah. yeah. You but, were very um, advanced. Oh yeah, yeah. Well, I had to. Well, I, there was there was a story coming up. I was quite keen to record <laughs> shortly after that. <laughs> yeah. So. Uh, yeah, we rented it. We rent. I just get it completely off the thing. Rented a video recorder. Ah, oh, damn. And that's about wow. all you could do in those days. And then you get a tape, and it costs you forty quid. I have, I have mm. seen, um, a VHS of the Horns of Nymon from mm. an original off-air recording back in nineteen seventy-nine, which of course mm-hmm. is a story before Leisure Hive. Yeah. And it, the the quality of the videotape was so <laughs> poor. <laughs> It was just all We're over the place. Mm. Yeah. Like the we are, project. absolutely. Yeah, but it must be so nice to see, like, full circle, the story you wrote on a nice, shiny, pristine disc looking as glorious as it does. Yeah, and it's funny, you know, you you know, you know, see it on a, in an HDTV now, you know, it kind of upgrades it. Yeah. Um, uh, and what have you. I'm sorry, I just, oh, yeah. sorry, I just remembered something um, when I was uh, taken on to um, write Survivors. Uh, it's set in 1975, for Big, for Big Finish. It's set in 1975, the summer of 1975, and that's the time scale for, for us when we are telling our stories uh, in, the, in this box set of stories mm-hmm. coming in June from Big Finish. Subscribers get more. Um, <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> yeah, I actually sent an email to uh, David Ritson. I said, this is in 1975. Something terrible has just occurred to me. None of these people would ever see the talents of Wen Chiang. <laughs> <gasps> Awful. You know, Andrew, if you're amenable to it, I'll have you and John Dorney on when this first series of Survivors comes out. Yeah. And we'll have an episode devoted to it. I don't care yeah. that it's not Doctor Who. It's my favourite <laughs> other series. <laughs> But back to the Doctor mm-hmm. Who. Yeah. You know, when we were talking about the Daleks about 45 minutes ago or whatever it was, mm. well, there are a few stories that sort of take the post-apocalyptic angle from a completely fresh angle and do something really weird or interesting with it. And as we were on the Daleks, I was going to bring up Day of the Daleks because that mm-hmm. is, like Last of the Time Lords that you were talking about earlier, Lee, it's one with a reset switch, so the apocalypse doesn't ever happen. But the apocalypse in Day of the Daleks is a real apocalypse at the time of the story before they get to the reset at the end. Because, of course, it being a time paradox, it always ends with a reset. That's how a time paradox works. But Day of the Daleks was a really 
interesting way in the 1970s of actually being able to put an apocalypse on the screen or the aftermath of an apocalypse on the screen and have it be real the dalek invasion is kind of case of one of the very few opportunities they had to sort of have their cake and eat it and actually do it i mean do any of us think that was a successful way and do any of us think that was an interesting way of being able to tell that story oh that was very interesting uh, and I, I i love that story to bits and I think, and it did something which at the time was unusual. It told a timey-wimey story. Um, yeah. It's not that much of it in the classic series. Mm. And I think it's got one of the most interesting characters as well, the controller. Mm. Uh, uh, Trying to remember the name of the actor. Aubrey Woods. Aubrey Woods. It? I was going to say Aubrey Morris then. You know, that wasn't right. But um, the, this guy, the controller of the, the zone that the Doctor and Joe go to in the future, who is... He should he should be the, the, the this horrible hate figure, and he's not. He plays him so it's he's so human in the part, and so understandable as someone who has got himself in a position where he knows he has to do bad things, and he's doing things to have the Daleks, but he does think he's making a difference in making people's lives better, and has to put up with some bad things, and, and at the end of the day, like people being tortured, and whatever. but uh, at the end of the day, um, uh, no, he makes he, the sacrifice, gonna, doesn't he? Yeah, yeah. But it was very unusual. It was a very unusual storytelling device at the time. It's really? actually used. Yeah, so really, I mean, visually it's really interesting as well, of course. You've got so-called terrorists coming from the future to a, a nice a state, a nice stately home. Uh, it's a real kind of combination, juxtaposition of images that works really well for me. But I think if you were to make that now, they'd set it on a, you know, some kind of urban street somewhere, um, with you know, with, maybe they wouldn't be terrorists from the future. Maybe they'd be um, people living in stately homes coming back with guns. <laughs> Just kind of reverse it a bit. <laughs> so, yeah. But there's a really interesting point you make there as well, because we were talking earlier about how a lot of the post-apocalyptic fiction of the 60s and 70s is to do with the Cold War, and then much, much later on, how if you're addressing the same themes, you perhaps have to touch on the idea of terrorism. And here's today of the Daleks doing both at the same time. It's predating Terminator as well, isn't it? Oh, yes, it did. Yeah, absolutely. It's so far ahead of its time, yeah. that story. It's astonishing to think it came from the same writer as Planet of Giants. <laughs> <laughs> one, thing it does have in, does, one thing it does have in common with a lot of Doctor Who stories of the time, though, is this thing of international tensions. Yeah. And again, that's very much of the time. Mm. In you know previous stories, Mind of Evil and others, uh, you know there are these international tensions, and um, you know we're on the brink of war, uh, uh, what have you. And of course, it's a it's a well-meaning guerrilla terrorist from the future with a bomb in the basement who uh, might be uh, sending things over the edge. So, yeah, be the one who's responsible. The funny <laughs> thing as well is, you tell a story like that. <clears throat> And I think this is something that quite a few writers have probably found over the years, or quite a few producers maybe. You tell a story like that, and really there's no going back afterwards. Because although, uh, like I say, they were quite clever in the way they didn't reset the Earth, or they did reset the Earth, so that they reset it back to the way it was supposed to be at the end of the story, and you can carry on on your 20th century Earth afterwards, and, you know, your location has not been changed. What they did was they told the ultimate story about those tensions that you could tell. And afterwards, they had to look for different kinds of tensions to tell stories about because that story was told. 
You know, it's the same mm. thing with the with them having to bring in the Blinovich limitation effect to stop the Doctor going back in time. Every story he encounters to, you know, save the trouble from ha- having happened even in the first place. I mean, Day of the Daleks is one of those really interesting stories, but you can only do it once. <laughs> yes, and that, and and that was a very clever, yeah, device and limitation that was set in that story. Mm. Yeah. Um, now, stirring it away away from the Daleks. Well, no, I am going to stir it away from the Daleks. One one um, enemy which is missing from this list is the Cybermen, and I was thinking about the fact that there's a different kind of apocalypse, which is the human apocalypse. In as much as uh, I think there's a story which we all want to be told in the series, which has never been, and, and I think the nearest thing to it is uh, spare parts with a big finish. Um, and that's this idea of basically the human race ending and becoming something different. Um, and I'd really like to see a story where we see that kind of happening, where we see the human race kind of imploding, because you know you've got all these outside influences like the Cold War. And uh, you know that, that you know World War Three and that kind of thing, that sort of thing can happen. But you've also got these more subtle things going on. That are we going to become something different to what we are? And um, I think I'd really, really like to see that. I mean, I think I think technically that's an apocalypse, isn't it? Well, you're just trying to be clever because you like the Cybermen so much. You're trying to shoehorn them <laughs> into the episode somewhere. <laughs> I, I, li- I like the human apocalypse title. <clears throat> But yeah, yeah. But it's 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 the same thing. It's all to do with the radiation, the metamorphosis of a, of, yeah, a, of a race becoming something different again. And I'm kind of I'm just surprised that the Cybermen aren't in that list. Well, the Cybermen have always been used for different reasons, haven't they? Originally, it was to do with spare part technology, and then on the reinvention of them in the new series, it was to do with sort of updating digital technologies. Mm, mm. So the Cybermen have always been there for a different reason. So I guess. They're so tied into that way of thinking that as a writer, if you were going to try and it, say, for example, me, if I if I was asked to write a Doctor Who, I would probably want to do something that somewhere touched upon the sort of post-apocalyptic idea because that's what I like. Mm. So what I'm saying is a writer, given that task to try and tell that story, probably wouldn't think to use the Cybermen because they're so associated with something else. Mm-hmm. I, uh, Lee, you probably bet, remember better than I do. Spare parts isn't isn't part of the reason they're doing all the conversions into Cybermen because there's uh, an ecological disaster happening. Yeah, so, so they can yeah. I, possibly. I can't remember now, but yeah, yeah, maybe. Hmm. Oh, well. <laughs> okay, changing. Well, going back to the subject of Day of the Daleks or not, but where I was going to go from there is. That's one story in the early 70s that comes comes at the subject from a really unusual angle. And staying with the theme of people wanting to use that theme of, you know, the post-apocalypse and somehow shoehorn it into a series, Doctor Who, where it doesn't really fit, you've also got the Silurians, which is the apocalypse is humankind. And you were about to bring this up earlier in the episode Simon and I tried to stop you because I wanted to get to it now (laughs) the Silurians is the story where the apocalypse is what's happened to another species but it's still on earth and we are not necessarily the result but one of the symptoms of what's gone wrong in the apocalypse that's a very unusual angle to take but the question is 
does it work as that kind of a story given the angle that Malcolm Hulk had to take in telling it? I think it absolutely does. I think it's one of the best ideas that's ever uh, been utilised in the history of Doctor Who. Um, and of course, we then have the other potential apocalypse ha- happening as part of the story with the plague that's mm. uh, involved and, and filmed the directed really, really well. It's a powerful piece of the, piece of the series. Yeah. And, um, and it was a good solution at the time to the problem of the Doctor being stuck on Earth. Um, and as Terence Dix and Malcolm Hawke, I think, have said, you know, that basically if you would two stories, Invasion and Mad Scientist. I think there were a few more options than that. But but this, you know, this is Invasion from Beneath the Ground, really. Um, but it has a lot of the same elements of, and I'm avoiding using the word trope because it's got... <laughs> well, we don't avoid think, using but, that word here because... Uh, it's... Yeah, it has a lot of the elements of um, the more conventional uh, post-apocalyptic story when you can actually have some sympathy for, this, for the Silurians. And their, mm. point, their point of view. Well, in fact, yes. And <laughs> that's, that is the brilliant thing about Malcolm Hulk's story, is that he's saying to the viewer, put yourself in the enemy's shoes, as it were. You know, enemy in inverted commas. Put yourself in the alien species' shoes and imagine what it would be like to see things from a different perspective. And Malcolm Holt is a brilliant writer because what he's done with that story is not just take all these fears we have of all these fears we had then of the Cold War, of everything becoming devastated, um, what's left afterwards being something different. But he's actually shown it to us in a way that makes us have to look at what the people on the other side of the fence are thinking. So he's done something really, really clever and very, very powerful in that story. Yeah, I mean, if the humankind um, got worried that something was about to hit the planet and we all disappeared underground, froze ourselves and came out a few thousand years later to see that mice men were running about, we'd be feeling pretty much the same as the Silurians. So it really does work as a real great twist in that apocalypse theme. And like Andrew said, one of my favourite episodes is the release of the plague, which is very doom-watch. Um, and that that gives you a glimpse of how terrifying it could be if something like that escaped into the environment that we couldn't stop. Um, that was my first real, I think, I, I watched that episode on somebody's video recorder, pirated of course, um, and <laughs> I remember seeing that and thinking, oh my god, that's really frightening. And then I saw Thread, so it was like a double whammy of, of, uh, of fear. And of course it was Adric who was flying towards Earth, wasn't it? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> well, there you go. We've come full circle. You've got your sums right, shouldn't you? Look, we yes. can't. Uh, we're pretty much through it now. Uh, we can't go without mentioning. I'm only going to mention these by name. Uh, the stories that are either set on or on a spaceship that's heading away from mm. an Earth after the ultimate. You know, after. The planet has become really barren. Sontaran Experiment, The Ark, The Ark in Space, um, The Beast Below, all those stories. And also, um, going back to the Daleks, The Dominators is to a certain extent something of a remake of The Daleks, mm. albeit that The Dominators <laughs> themselves are aliens to the planet Dulkis, but essentially they're taking the same part as The Daleks were in The Daleks. And of course, the Dominators might not be set on a devastated Earth, but a lot of the story is set on a devastated island that is actually post-nuclear. 
which is um, an interesting way of the writers of the time addressing the same subject. Yeah, but and, that... and, the, and the Dolcians have become, as a result of the nuclear war, have become a uh, society totally dedicated to peace. Just exactly makes like... Makes them the ideal people, the dominators, to attack with their mm. quarks. Yeah, just like the time machine. And just, yeah, just exactly like the time machine and just exactly like the Thals and the Daleks in the Daleks. Hmm. But the idea of the Dominators being partially set on a post-nuclear island brings me to the two stories that were the reason I wanted to do this podcast in the first place (laughs) because other than Dalek Invasion of Earth, they are my two favourites in this genre and if I'm going to be completely honest, they're not in this genre at all. (laughs) <laughs> and that is Invasion of the Dinosaurs and the Web, Web of Fear, Fear, which are both set not on a devastated mm. Earth, but in a deserted London. You had a, go, the, you had a nerve to have a go at me about bringing the Cybermen into it, seriously. <laughs> yeah, fair enough. Can't argue with that. But but that's where I wanted to end up. Uh, it, it's two stories, and in particular, the two first episodes. And, um, you know, the uh, Sarah Jane adventure, where um, oh, the two kids, whose names I can't remember, uh, wake up one day to find themselves the all empty, alone in the uh, middle of London. Sorry? It's by Gareth. It's by Gareth Roberts. Is it the empty air? Yep, that's the one. Mm. Same Brilliant. thing, exactly. Same. Brilliant, that one. Yeah. Doctor and companion or companions arrive on Earth to find the entire place deserted. Turns out it's only London that's deserted. It, there's not been an apocalypse, but some kind of an invasion has led to an evacuation, and wow, there's nothing much more to say from me other than I just love them. It's an apocalypse trick, isn't it? It's a, yeah. It's, it's the right is tricking us. You've been waiting for 60 minutes to say <laughs> that, haven't you? <laughs> I had that Web, Web of Fear, sorry. Go on. I was going to say, Web of Fear is the first story that I have a definite memory of. Uh, the Yeti. Oh, really? Yeah, uh, I was so pleased um, when that came back. In fact, I tweeted yeah. before they'd announced them. Oh, yet in the underground, it'd be good. And it would, yeah, yeah Weather Fear came back. Um, I remember Cybermen very, I'm very, very keen on the Cybermen. I'd love to write Cybermen one day. But, um, uh, you know, so I remember them, and that might be from before that. I don't know. But um, the first story I can point at and see, I definitely, I watched that, was when it went out, was the Weather Fear. And that, that's the kind of story that when you first see it, that is going to have a lasting effect on, you know, you're never going to forget that, are you? No, the old man covered in cobwebs by yes. the tube station, you know, such a fantastic image as well. It's such a good idea. I mean, it's a good way to get into a story is to have a, you know, to lay out a mystery. Yeah. And it's it's a good, reliable mystery. You know, the city's deserted. Where has everybody gone? Where, you know, what? possibly could have happened to sort of clear out the city. Um, uh, it sets you up, up really well and so many possibilities from it as well. I think it's a real shame, actually, that the new series hasn't addressed that. I know they did it in the Sarah Jane Adventures, but I would love to see that in Doctor Who. And eight years along, and that's the one thing we still haven't seen. Not properly. And There was, uh, there was uh, Voyage of the Damned when um, yeah. it went down to Earth. The place had been deserted, but that was because We'd had three Christmases in a row, <laughs> yeah. mm. where London had nearly been white, so it's people that sort of leave, I think. But, but yeah. um, apart from where, yeah, I want to see the TARDIS land and the Doctor say, "Where is everybody?" 
And, you know, you spend the next 40 minutes finding out. That's what I want to see. Better writing than mate. I'd say, I'd say another one is kind of the uh, the stolen earth. Um, yeah, there's... there's uh, street scenes there. There are a yeah, few, yeah. 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 Mm. And Daleks mopping people up, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Hmm. Yeah, it's been it's been touched upon. It's not been hmm. the central sort of basis for a story yet, though. No, which is a shame. But you know, we've had also things like the end of the world, which um, follows some more of the same tropes from the really post 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 apocalyptic end of things. But if you look at the character of um, Cassandra in that, that is kind of an example an ultimate and satirical example of um what i was saying earlier and what we all touched upon earlier about mutation but also change and development and evolution and adaptation in the human the apocalypse sort of, yeah basically mm. <laughs> you know what i'm saying yeah i, I mean the, the end of the world's an interesting one isn't it because it, it it's truly an apocalyptic episode it's the end of the earth there's no going, mm. going back on it. it's definitely the end of the earth yet they were watching it from a lovely cozy view like an armchair in a very douglas adams kind of way so it's a, it's a lovely twist on that but it's not really post-apocalyptic and it's, it's, apoc- it's, it's an apocalypse but it's not a disaster no no, no. <laughs> it's done it's done with nibbles yeah can i um can i sorry can i completely hijack this podcast and just as a complete fanboy can I ask Andrew what it was like to meet Douglas Adams? Uh, it was, I just thought he's tall. <laughs> <laughs> he's very tall. Uh, uh, it's like, no, uh, no, it's nice. I only, uh, you only met him uh, the once, spent a day with him um, when I was 16, uh, and I was sending stuff in, and he said, oh, I'll come down and um, recording Creature from the Pit at the time. And, um, you yeah, know, it's a good long chance. Uh, and he's given me some pointers and sort of writing in general, because that's what I wanted to do, write, not just write for Doctor Who. Mm. And I had the pleasure of meeting his uh, daughter, Polly, a couple of times uh, in recent months. Uh, to tell her what a pleasure it was to meet him. And, um, that, uh, you know, he gave me some key pointers, both then and in, and in letters uh, as well. Mm. Um, uh, and he bought me, as I've mentioned before, he bought me my first alcoholic drink oh. in, the, uh, in the bar at BBC uh, TV Centre. Outrageous. Yeah, yeah it's quite nice one to drop in a conversation. Oh, Dr. bought me my first drink, you know. It's, um, was it a yeah, yeah, it made a very, very, very positive impression. And I've got to say, his, uh, uh, his daughter Paul is on Twitter, actually, and she is so witty. She is definitely her dad's daughter and uh, worth a follow on Twitter as well. Very, very, very witty. Uh, women, Polly. Oh, do you know what the Twitter handle she uses then? If, if uh, that's, uh, that's thinking, I've, I've mentioned that, and I can't. Um, can I get oh, it? that's all yeah. right. Hang on a second. <laughs> I'm sure people will be able to find it. Yeah, yeah. Uh, In the meantime, <laughs> okay, we've got. Well, if you don't mind, we've got just a handful of emails to get through, and we usually try. So, do you mind if we do that? Yeah, um, mentioned Polly is po- uh, Polly, on, Polly J R Adams. Oh, uh, at Polly J R Adams. So on Twitter. Oh, there you go. There's obviously got to be a reason for that, but I'm not quite sure of it yet. It's probably a timey wimey thing. Yeah. <laughs> um. Oh, you know what? Before we do emails, we've got a new segment 
Do you two guys, Simon Lee, do you remember what our new segment is? Yeah. Do you remember the uh, jingle we sang for it? No. <laughs> oh God, I'm gonna have to sing it. I'm gonna have to sing it by myself then. I'm gonna try and get it right. It's Knox Box. Oh yeah, that's right. Yeah. Or something like that. Do you want to try and join <laughs> should, me then? Should we do it together? Okay, here we go then. Three, two, one. Knox Box. Oh, do it again. Do it again. Do it again. Okay, let's do it again. Uh, this is Owen. Oh, Grant, you'll love this. This is this is your jingle with Andrew Smith, writer of Full Circle, joining in. Ready? Three, two, one. Knox box. box. <laughs> and uh, well, for those who for those who haven't heard last week's podcast or don't know, Grant Knock wrote in, and he was going to go through the entire Stephen Moffat era in order to see whether he liked it better the second time than he did the first time. And I asked him to send us very short capsule reviews of each of the stories as he went so we could find out how his journey was going. And this week he sent us the following. He says, Victory of the Daleks. I like the first 20 minutes, then it all goes a bit pear-shaped. Don't know why all the fuss with the new Daleks. I quite like them. Uh, for Time of Angels, Flesh and Stone, he says, I like those before. I love them now. Genuinely scary. Now one of my favourite stories ever. I think watching in the dark helped. Uh, Vampires of Venice. I quite enjoyed that. The ending felt a little disjointed, but overall it was okay. And for Amy's choice, he said, I thought this was a bit daft before, but it really worked this time. Easily Karen Gillan's best performance so far. Don't really understand the ending, but it doesn't bother me. And that was it. So now we have to sing Knox Box afterwards to take us back out into the podcast. Everybody ready? Oh, yeah. yeah. Okay, then. Here we go. Box Knox. I thought you meant properly backwards. Sorry. <laughs> it doesn't really matter. Sorry, Shall we try it again? Sorry, on three, just... two, one. Go on, then. Three, two, one. Box Knox. Oh, this is fantastic. <laughs> Uh, Matt Barber wrote about an hour before we started recording and said, Dear JR, Sir Andrew Smith and the other two, I was wondering if there was a case to claim the end of the world was a post-apocalyptic story. It doesn't feature the Mad Max stylings of, say, Utopia, but it does feature the aftermath of a form of global catastrophe, in this case a slow one of depopulation and abandonment. Cassandra then becomes a symbol of both the cause and effect of the apocalypse. In this way, the episode is a post-apocalyptic tale told at one stage of removal. We see the whole planet emptied and on the verge of destruction, but at a safe distance. He says, and this is funny because I'd already, you know, we were already planning to do this. He says, I'd also throw in Doctor Who and the Silurians as a curveball. If, as Malcolm Hulk encourages to do in his Target books, we read the story from the perspective of the Silurians, it becomes virtually a remake of the crypto-apocalyptic planet of the apes. A catastrophe drives the inhabitants of the Earth below the surface, and they awake to find their planet has been overrun and their culture destroyed. The more you think about it, the more post-apocalyptic stories are hidden throughout the series. The Ark in Space, the Sontaran Experiment, and Genesis of the Daleks are a trilogy of them. 
Inferno has some of the imagery tucked away behind its disaster movie stylings, and even Pyramids of Mars contains a sneaky post-apocalyptic moment. It becomes a particularly weighty subject once you move beyond the view that the post-apocalypse genre should look like Mad Max, and instead is simply any story in which a society or culture has been changed by a massive catastrophe. Ah, uh, love Matt. He thinks far too much about these things, way more than we do. <laughs> I, I have to say, I've read mm. his recent thing about the anachronistic nature of Doctor Who, his most recent yeah. essay, and what was the one before that? Just, just amazing. I think. I, I just, I just think it's great. I really do. And the rest of us would say too much time on his hands. <laughs> no. It's a good job we didn't read that out at the beginning of the podcast. We could have stopped after five minutes. For yeah, the, the end of the world, I've thought about it, and I think it's the one story that actually contains the actual apocalypse, but is probably not post-apocalyptic. No, definitely not. Exactly. No. Well, in fact, it can't be post-apocalyptic, can it? Because it's the apocalypse is right at the end. Yeah, it's apocalypse the... now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I suppose it is. Yeah. Um, Richard Hogarth says, Hey guys, loving the podcast. The recent run of episodes have been exquisite. We have had laughs. Stories and mind-bending Stephen Moffat timey-wimey with the Suspending Belief and uh, Suspending Disbelief and Season 23 podcasts. I'm loving the Male Companions one, but for me, the 80s Companions are great ideas. A kid who's like the Doctor and an alien forced to kill the Doctor, but after the first story, they go nowhere, which is such a shame, and they deserve the storylines that Ace wound up getting in Season 26. Finally, talking of all this gender swapping, how do you guys feel about a female Doctor for the future? And would one have affected the classic series? Um, P.S. My favourite post-apocalyptic story is The Impossible Planet. While not post-apocalyptic in the traditional sense, but the absolute downbeat nature of it and the look of the base and the story, for me at least, makes it a great example of the genre and great Doctor Who. Not so, sure. No, I I I don't think sure so. Sure, no, no. No. I I understand what he's getting at. Um, but again, he needs it's, the feel of it, doesn't he? Yeah, but I think it's 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 kind of a pre-apocalypse again, isn't it? It's like if the devil got out, the the universe would be wiped. But um, I'm going to save his lady doctor question though for our hundredth podcast when we do the questions. Can Thank I you. Yes, so... <laughs> 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 I think that's something we can come back to. <laughs> Um, got one more email, and uh, that's it. From Tim Trewarther. He says, Dear JR and the lads, another fun episode, dudes. I can say without a doubt the Blue Box podcast eases the pain. Here's an idea for episode 100, Rubbish Story Titles. Oh, there's a reason I'm reading this out now rather than saving it, by the way. We'll get to it in a moment. Which ones are the worst, and can you come up with anything better? I love Robots of Death, but the title is rubbish. Worse was one of the working titles, Planet of the Robots. <laughs> they must have they must have spent a combined total of 12 seconds coming up with those down at the Doctor Who think tank. He says, and this is the coincidence, I have come up with some alternative titles for season 18, which I have gathered from past podcasts is JR's all-time favourite. Ooh. <laughs> um, I think he's being slightly funny here he says an alternative title for The Leisure Hive Anagram of the Mafiosi for Meglos, Meglos the Cactus Man of Fearful Death for Full Circle just Adric in homage to Rose for Warrior's Gate Weird Freaky Shit which I'm sure would have gone down 
wonderfully well with the Mary Whitehouse Brigade. And for Logopolis... <laughs> no, would have gone down fine with JNT then. Uh, Logopolis, entropy increases. Then, of course, the inverse of that question is, what are the best titles? If you'd already covered this in an old podcast, apologies. I also like the idea of doing a defense of various stories that are deemed worst episode ever, like like oh, comic yeah. book guy from The Simpsons by the fans. Um, actually, I had to point out to him, we, I did this with some guests a few weeks ago. Maybe I should do it with you guys as well. So we'll have to save that one for the future. Mm. He says you shouldn't stop at time flight. No, no, no. You should do dimensions in time, canine and company, the space pirates, time lash, etc. And even if you can find nothing redeemable in these classics, <laughs> it would be fun trying. Yeah, everything's got something redeemable. Absolutely. Mm. Read the, well, read almost. The best, read the best title thing. It's funny. Yeah. There was, it was a couple of years ago. Stephen Moffat was still on Twitter. And it, I think, oh, yeah. I think it was Gary Gillett. It might have been Johnny Morris, but I think it was Gary Gillett who tweeted, you know, but right, everyone, what's your favourite story title? Uh, oh, I was there. I, I remember that. Yeah. And, um, I think the winner was Horror of Fang Rock. Um, yeah. But I tweeted, fear her. And a lot of people came back and said, oh, but it's really, oh, I didn't like it. Oh, I the question was, what was the best title? And I remember the Radio Times uh, did a, the thing from Russell. Uh, when, the, when the first uh, when the series started, series two, and all the titles were there, and the one that really let out of me was Fear Her. Um, really, yeah. Again, you're talking just t- titles and whatever. Um, it really got. I thought that's the one I want to see. That's the one I want to see. I'm saying no more than that. <laughs> I, you know, I I wrote a huge essay on this years ago. And I came up, well, two. There are two that I came up with, and I'll give you them, and I'll give you quickly my reason. The Ark in Space and Pyramids of Mars, in both instances, because they include two elements that you recognise, but they should never go together. And so Mm. the juxtaposition of the two in the title itself is a mystery that you need to watch the story in order to see resolved. There's also, what's the purpose of the title? Is it to encapsulate what the story is about, or is it to get you watching? And I think in both of those two, and in Fear Her as well, you've mm. got both of those things going on at the same time. And yes, Horror yeah. of Fang Rock is another example of that. Yeah, it's got I'd love to hear a discussion of Bells of St. John. You know, the Leisure Hive could have been called uh, Deck Chair on the Beach. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's... Uh, Oh, but Bells of St. John does include a double meaning that I think most people have, um, most people have, um, missed. failed to see. Yeah, missed. Including me, I think. Um, well, um, oh, the, oh gosh, I can't remember now because it's a while since I've watched it. <laughs> the church that's named in the poem that's St. John's, the line in the poem that refers to that church is also something of an analogy for what happens in the story. I can't remember specifically what it was, but I spotted that at the time. And so whether that's deliberate or not, or whether it's just I was reading that into it because I was looking for it, <laughs> I don't know. But there you go. There was well, a kind got, of a double... Anyway. Whatever. Yeah. Mm, it's not the best, is it? It's not, it doesn't... it's not as good as Brain of Morbius, is it? <laughs> well, it doesn't say, Doctor Who's back, you have to watch it. <laughs> Not really. Anyway, at the end of Tim's email, um, he just says one more thing, which is, 
thanks for reading out oh if you have not heard last week's email yet you won't get this but thanks for reading out my last email jr and getting my first name wrong it's been a long long time this is from tim by the way it's been a long long time since i've been anything close to trim but bless your god socks for saying it anyway <laughs> but i'll tell you what that's still still that's it's lovely to get the email tom thank you very much <laughs> absolutely right mm. and at the end he's given himself the pseudonym Zoanon man because uh, we've got a real pseudonyms thing going on at the moment right I think we should cut it dead there because we've overrun and Andrew I know you've got something you want to get off and do yeah, but mm. well I was hoping we'd get a bit of a chance to talk a bit more about Big Finish but in lieu of that, I think we should say, would you like to come back on closer to the time of Survivors and talk some more about that and about the rest of Big Finish and the rest of what you do? Yes, I'd love to do that. Yeah, well, so it's in June. Can I, Excellent. Um, can I well, just say thank you to Andrew for recommending Polly Adams? I've, just, I've been completely distracted because her photo feed on Twitter is a complete antidote to the, <laughs> selfie, the selfie culture. You see her selfies and they all make sense. Ah, yeah. We're all going to have to track her down now, aren't we? <laughs> well, if one thing's yeah, come out of this podcast, it'll uh, be that. She tweeted a... Uh, uh, oh, I'm, I'm going to forget the details now, but she, she tweeted a photograph once it was of an airport view, and there was a sunset over the airport. Um, uh, and and it was something like, just to prove sometimes there is something as beautiful as an airport, which is a reference to yeah. like one of her dad's books. I think it was... I'm going to say it very gently... Um, I probably got it wrong, but um, uh, but yeah, to her, yeah, follow her on Twitter. Mm, definitely. Mm. Right, I shall say this quietly in case the missus can hear me for the next room, but I shall definitely be looking her up. Um, <laughs> <clears throat> well, Andrew, thank you for joining us. Thank it you, was thank an you for having me. Yeah, it's been thank fun. You, oh, Thanks so much. It was an absolute pleasure to have intelligent oh. conversation on the podcast for a change. <laughs> It certainly feels like the podcast has come of age. <laughs> oh, next week. I think next week, shall we do season 14? Yeah, let's do that. That's so I'll put a quick message out on Facebook as well. And if you're hearing this before we've recorded the podcast, which will probably be Monday, so get your uh, act together, find us on Facebook and vote for the six stories in season 14 in your order of preference for when we do the podcast, because that's the stupid thing we do, and we're going to continue doing it. Is that the Mask of Mandragora series? Uh, yeah, Mask of Mandragora through to the talents of Wang Chiang. I've yes. got... I've recently phoned the... Hmm. Uh, I think, I'm pretty sure it's the Doctor Appreciation Society magazine with the season poll for that season. Oh, yeah. Um, and if you like, I'll send you along what the results were to that, and you can compare... Oh, yeah. oh, that'd be really I'm, interesting. What the fan vote was at the time. I may have that somewhere myself, but if you know where it is, that'll be much easier for you to dig out. Thanks. I've got it because I, I used to write kind of my own. I recorded off air and I wrote my own novelizations of the stories, and I was doing that for every story at that time. <laughs> so they they printed the results and had excerpts that I'd sent in from I think four or five of the stories alongside the votes, and that's why I still got it. But um, oh. It's interesting reading through it and seeing the comments of some, you know, some, including some adverse comments around some stories that are very well regarded. Oh, yeah. It's a very interesting one. I look forward really to that podcast. I shall be listening. Excellent. Mm. Well, until then, then, 
I was JR. I was Lee. I was Simon. I was Andrew. And we'll speak again soon. I'd said to David on Twitter, uh, if Louis Smith wins Strictly, I'll turn up at the recording a kill. <laughs> After the bugger had had a bad dance and then he went and won it. But um, I was going to wear a kilt later that day anyway, because it was Burns Night at Scotland Yard. I was going to that. But uh, uh, I had to wear it and travel in on the Russia and uh, whatnot. And then I had uh, William Russell feeling my knee. <laughs> <laughs> it was very odd being. I, I don't think, apart from my wedding and maybe a couple of other people's wedding, I don't think I spent a whole day in a kilt. And they've got this really low couch in the control room where I usually sit, just behind like the director and that at the big finished studio. And, it, and again, you get, get that thing of kind of watching <laughs> your kilt and where it's going when you sit down and pulling over your knees. <laughs> it's a bit of a talking point. <laughs> There's like uh, when the disc comes out, it'll probably have a photo of me in the kilt on it. We to go a cast photo. So there's me in, in my, my white dinner uh, shirt sort of thing and, and the kilt. And after Alex, Alex Mallinson took the picture, after he took it, I thought, people are going to think I go around in a kilt. They will do. You know, the, the, this We're going to have to attach yeah. this little bit of the conversation to the end of the podcast <laughs> to make sure people don't... <laughs> to make sure people realise the truth, aren't we? I think, yeah. what they, I think what they should do with the big finished photo is just Photoshop everybody else in a kilt to make you feel at home. Yes. Oh, yeah. Yes. <laughs>